great to be with you this morning. We are continuing in our vision series, which we officially started last week. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, and we'll pick up there in a moment. If you uh, did not bring a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. If you do not own a Bible, those are yours to keep. Uh, If you have a friend or family member who needs a Bible and doesn't have one, again, feel free uh, to take a couple of those and uh, give them out as you desire. By way of reminder, or if you were not here with us last week, uh, the vision statement for our church, which we began unpacking last Sunday, is this. Uh, We are a genuine expression of the family of God, faithful to Scripture, uh, centered on the gospel, and committed to making resilient disciples. We value life in the Spirit in which the church becomes a participatory body, passionately seeking the kingdom of God in prayer and worship as God empowers us for His global mission in both neighborhoods and nations. And I know that sounds like a lot as you read it out all together, but you can uh, take that vision statement, and Gabe, I think we have a slide for this, you can take that vision statement and break it down into eight individual values that are central to the life of our church. Uh, And of those uh, eight values that we are focusing on this year. We actually touched on four of them last Sunday and either directly did them, engaged in them, or um, prayed through them as a community and shared some vision on those. Uh, So four of them we've already talked uh, about and prayed into. The other four, we're going to take one each Sunday, uh, starting today and going for the next three Sundays, and uh, unpack them in greater depth, bring a little bit more clarity to what we mean by those things. Uh, Starting this morning with the value of being faithful to Scripture. Uh, We'll pick up in 2 Timothy 3, verse 14, where Paul writes this to Timothy. It says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know that those from whom you learned it, uh, you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, this morning as we... Uh, come together and uh, contemplate uh, this uh, beautiful, ancient, provocative uh, book that you have given us. Uh, God, I pray that you would help us sort out in our own hearts and our own minds what is, uh, what is my relationship to this book, to this library that we call the Bible. 
Uh, how do I relate to it? Where, uh, what, are, what are patterns of thinking and relating that are healthy? And maybe uh, what are some that are unhealthy? Uh, would you reveal to us, Lord, uh, where we've maybe adopted some of the thinking of the culture or um, compromised your vision? And ultimately, Lord, as your followers, as your disciples, we want to relate to this book the way you related to this book. Uh, we, we want to walk as you walked. We want to think the way that you think and love the way that you loved. And ultimately, uh, we want to navigate wisely in this life uh, and stand before you at the end of the age hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. So would today be uh, an important moment on that journey, Lord? And, and would we not waste this moment? Would you sort out uh, our, our hearts and minds as we press into you and, and think about your truth this morning? We pray these things in the power of the Spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the book that you hold in your hands is without a doubt the most popular and perhaps the most controversial book of all time. Uh, the oldest full copy of the Bible that we still have uh, intact, Old and New Testaments together, is a copy that was written on parchment and dates back to the fourth century. We have bits and pieces that go much earlier than that, but a full copy of the Bible is from the fourth century. But it wasn't until a thousand years later, in 1557, that the first full Bible was printed using the newest technology of the day, the printing press. And since that time, uh, uh, the Bible has been the top-selling book of all time and has continued to be the number one selling book week over week, month over month, for centuries. In fact, most of the um, companies or groups that would track book sales don't even keep the Bible on there because it would be undisputed number one every single month for centuries. So they just say, hey, we all know that. Let's set it aside. And this month it's Harry Potter or whatever the thing is. But if you were to actually track it, it would be number one every single month uh, century over century. Every year, uh, the Bible sells 100 million copies, and 20 million of those copies are in the United States alone. It is the most widely distributed, most popular, and most controversial book in all of human history. And we do not have time this morning to highlight the countless men and women who have died over those centuries to get this book in your hands. This book has reshaped humanity as we know it, bringing down empires and reshaping the Western world from the inside out. And even as we sit here this morning, and worship together, 
there are countless governments and nations across the world actively working to suppress, discourage, subvert, and destroy this book and the communities that form around it. Because they know almost intuitively that this book is a threat to their power. Mahatma Gandhi of India once said, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-torn planet. This book, or series of books, called the Bible, is a story. But it is also more than just a story. It is the divinely inspired true story of God and humanity. And it is designed to usher us into life-changing, eternal covenant with Jesus of Nazareth, the God of the universe. The Bible is stunning in its power, its depth, its insight, its poetry, and its truth claims. It contains piercing insight into human history, the human heart, and humanity's future in God's kingdom. But it is not an easy book to read. Ten days ago, we launched our first a Regions Beyond USA internship program for the six Regions Beyond churches uh, in the U.S., and I was um, very involved in sort of architecting and uh, running that program. And one of the things that we're asking, uh, our church won't actually have an intern this year, but I'm still very involved in the program. And one of the things that every Regions Beyond intern is going to do during their year-long internship is to read the Bible cover to cover in one year. And because I'm helping lead these interns through this experience, I thought, you know what? I think I'm going to do it too. Uh, it's been a couple years since I've read the Bible cover to cover, so I'll do it with you guys. And 10 days ago, we started. And I tell you, in the last 10 days, I think I have experienced just about every emotion I can imagine while reading Scripture. And we're still in the book of Genesis. I mean, you open it up and immediately... You're reading about God creating the universe out of nothing and creating the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. And I tell you, the first two chapters of Scripture are some of my favorite. I love the creation accounts. Uh, I've studied them personally and in seminary uh, from just about every angle. I love reading them and going deeper and contemplating what that might have looked like. But after years of loving those chapters and studying them and reading all of these different resources, I still don't totally know what's going on. Like I still pick up the Bible just like anyone else and think, what am I reading right now? Like what what is this? Is this science? Is this 
ancient Near Eastern creation literature? Is this mythological, literal, poetic, archetypal, or is it all four at once? And is this account in these chapters about God creating the Garden of Eden? Or is it about him creating the entire earth? It's actually not very clear. And, and why is there light on day one, but the sun isn't even mentioned until day four? And, and what is this thing about the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? And what about, and, and then the Bible just keeps going. <laughs> doesn't answer my question, why are there two creation accounts back to back that kind of look similar, but maybe not? And, and then it keeps going from there. And I was reading about the sons of God who start uh, making babies with the daughters of humans back when the Nephilim were on the earth. You remember the Nephilim, right? <laughs> Like, we all know about the Nephilim, so now I'm just going to move on to the next subject. You're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What is that? Who or what are the Nephilim? Could you explain that for just a little bit? And the scripture doesn't explain. It just keeps going. And, and then you get deeper into the story, and you have uh, men who start taking multiple wives and it never goes well, but neither is it ever explicitly talked about. And, and then you have family members who kill each other. And, and you have families that grow into tribes and then into people groups and nations, and they kill each other. And, and then you have holy wars, and animal sacrifice. And at one point, God sends a plague on his own people. And that's just the first few chapters. <laughs> and I've been reading, and honestly, it is bringing life to my soul. I love, like the idea of reading scripture is intimidating. When I actually do it, it is so life-giving. And over these last 11 days as I've been uh, re-engaging with scripture in a fresh way, man, it's been stirring these fresh thoughts in me and God has been speaking prophetically to me and speaking to me, giving me words for others through these simple verses uh, that I'm reading. I can actually feel my faith growing He's had times where he's uh, helped me to express my inner uh, anguish and tension and turmoil through the Psalms. Saying, no, this is, I give you permission to pray to me this way. It has been such a life-giving thing over these last 10 days. But on the sideline of my reading experience, in the margins, on the fringes, I have these questions. And, and the more scripture I read, 
the more questions I have. I have so many questions about the Bible. And then you add in sort of the backdrop, which is the increasingly secular culture in which we live, um, that actually isn't asking good questions about the Bible, but rather is questioning the Bible itself with an air of sort of cynicism and hostility. Hey, can you really trust that book? And wasn't it just written by people, and ancient people, at that? And isn't it just poetry and metaphor? And wasn't this just a pre-scientific attempt to explain the world as they understood it? And hey, doesn't the Bible suppress women and minorities? And doesn't it condone slavery? and holy wars? And isn't it regressive when it comes to sexuality and all things LGBTQ? And couldn't we just do better if we wiped the slate clean and started over? Do we really need all of that ancient baggage? I mean, why don't we just start from scratch and make a cultureless society that believes in tolerance and relativism. Aren't we better off without that book? Perhaps it's time we threw it out. And most of us, on some level, are aware of those cultural voices or that cultural pressure. And we're seeing Christians respond to that pressure in at least three different ways that I want to unpack briefly this morning. Uh, response one from American Christians is to uh, listen to those voices. It's to listen to the secular narrative and throw out the Bible. Uh, it's, it's too hard to defend. I, I'm tired of going against the grain. I only believed this because my parents told me to, but I'm questioning all of that now. And I think it would be a lot easier if I just let it go. I'm just going to throw out the Bible and try and be uh, tolerant and relevant and just go with the cultural flow. I don't like standing out or wrestling with these things. In fact, I'm done with the Bible. I'm done with church. That's group one. Uh, we'll call group one the nuns or the duns. And then you've got group two, which is almost a panicked reaction to the nuns and duns, right? They see this trend happening. They see the cultural pressure and they say, no, 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 no. Please don't leave. Don't walk away. We can fix this. We can fix the Bible. We can reinterpret it for the modern age. We can make it less offensive and sanitize it. We can clean it up and make it palatable for postmodern ears. Just please come back. Within the center of group two, you've got loads of progressive churches that are attempting to reinterpret what the Bible has to say on a lot of tough subjects in our culture. 
So let's say, hey, we're going to go back and sort of rediscover that actually all the verses that talk about uh, homosexual activity or uh, any verse that differentiates between men and women or uh, any verse that seems to grind against modern atheistic science, anything that causes tension, we're going to reinterpret and say, actually, that's not what it really means. Or, or that was for ancient people, but it's not for us. Or there's actually another way of seeing all of these different verses that are in Scripture. Essentially, anything that causes conflict or cultural tension uh, has to go. Uh, that includes, in many cases, all of the miracles that Jesus performed. Uh, it includes things like parting the Red Sea. In a lot of cases, it can even include the resurrection. There's almost this attitude of, hey, those things are really embarrassing in our modern scientific age. Now we know better. Now we know better than ancient people, and we understand the laws of physics, and so we know those things didn't really happen. So let's sort of reinterpret them as poetry or metaphor, and these other verses that tell us how to live, well, that was for their time, place, and culture, not ours, and what this actually means is this, and we can ignore all this stuff over here, and we slowly sort of uh, shift what we see in Scripture and water it down and sanitize it for modern ears. Uh, and in many cases within those communities, the Bible is still around because after all, it does talk about love and tolerance and acceptance, I think. Um, so we're going to keep the Bible, but large chunks of the Bible... It's kind of on the back burner. We're kind of going to ignore it and suppress it a little bit and reinterpret or just focus on the, the couple of verses that we like and ignore the rest. Uh, the Bible's there, but it's embarrassing. We're embarrassed of the Bible, and we need to find a new way to explain or explain away all of this stuff. Uh, as a result, Less than 2% of millennials in America have a biblical worldview, and the numbers are even lower for Gen Z, meaning that some huge percentage of the U.S. adults still identify as Christians. Statistical majority of Americans still check that box. Yes, I'm a Christian. Um, but if you look at people age 40 and under, all across America, that's like more than half of the U.S. population, that means that of that half, uh, less than 1% actually have a biblical worldview based on Scripture. 1% or less. And in part, that's due to camp number two. It's not completely their fault, but it goes along with that way of thinking that says, hey, we're going to water it down, set it aside, reinterpret and sanitize. If we reference the Bible at all, it'll be the few verses that we actually like. Um, but over time, you water it down so much that you arrive at something that's far, far less than what Scripture was meant to be. But then you've got group number three. And we'll call group number three the fundamentalists. And you can actually trace even that word, fundamentalism, through this lens, right? That you have uh, group one who said, hey, I'm tired of defending the Bible, I'm out. 
Like, I'm done with this. Group two says, let us reinterpret the Bible. We'll gut the parts that we don't like in hopes that you'll come back. Group three is yet another reaction against this is, oh, no, you didn't. Like, you cannot do that with Scripture. So even that word fundamentalist meant we're going back to the fundamentals. We're going we're gonna to recapture these very basic truths uh, that Scripture has. It's sort of this reaction against the reinterpretation of group two. And they kind of go the other direction. So the Bible is the word of God, which is great. But any human involvement in the writing or compiling of Scripture is sort of ignored or swept under the rug. Uh, the Bible is perfect and without flaw and contradiction, but even beyond that, uh, in many fundamentalist camps, there is no messiness. Uh, there is no gray area. Everything is clear in Scripture, and we know how to interpret it. We have one answer to every question, but if you don't agree with our precise interpretation of Scripture, then it means you're progressive and you have to go. Like You cannot question our precise interpretation of Scripture. It means you've gone soft. It means, you're, it means you're on your way to camp number two. And we cannot allow that. It's sort of uh, my way or the highway when it comes to interpreting the Bible. So the upside of group number three is that the Bible is treated as the word of God and it's treated with this sense of reverence and respect. Uh, but the downside is that fundamentalist churches tend to treat everything as black and white and not just big picture issues, but, but everything down to the minutia becomes these black and white issues. Uh, and to uh, question those things is to risk uh, being thrown out of that community. So in those camps, everything is black and white. The Bible is clear. It sort of fell out of heaven as this perfect intact thing. We know exactly how to interpret it. But if you're not exactly in line with us, then, then it means that you, you can't be here. And a lot of those camps are in camp number three. There's often this sort of zero tolerance policy for any sort of uh, biblical exploration or debate surrounding the scriptures. And as we sort of reflect on those three different camps, I'm guessing there's some of us in the room who would fall into uh, each one of those camps or identify pretty strongly. There might be some of you in the room this morning feeling overwhelmed by cultural cynicism and skepticism. You're saying, oh man, like the Bible and I, I'm hanging by a thread right now. Like the Bible and I are not on good terms. And I haven't read it in years, but even though I haven't read it, the, the questions I have about scripture are still bothering me, almost torturing me. Like my doubts and my questions are just louder than my faith right now. And, and I can't tell, but I think I'm on my way out. I don't know how to reconcile these things that I'm wrestling with. I feel overwhelmed by cynicism. Uh, I might be done. I think it's time for me to throw the baby out with the bathwater and move on. That, that's camp number one. Uh, camp number two 
is, hey, man, the Bible is an old book with some old stuff in it. And, and it just needs to be updated for and reinterpreted for the modern age. Perhaps some of you have had those moments or seasons where you feel like, oh man, I have this impulse to just reinterpret the prickly parts, the difficult parts, the things that I don't agree with. If we could just erase some of that tension that I feel between the Bible and secular culture, I, I mean, wouldn't that be helpful? And, and I mean, why, why did Paul have to say that that way? Like, did you really have to have that in the Bible? And, and can't we skip over this bit over here? And, and can't we all just get along? If you, if you have that impulse to like, man, I want to relieve that tension by reinterpreting Scripture, um, that's camp number two. And honestly, there's probably a few of us that fall into camp number three as well which is yet another sort of reaction against. Camp number three, uh, you might know you're in camp number three if you started to hyperventilate uh, when I described camp number two and your chest sort of tightened up and your blood pressure rises and you're like, oh, like you cannot do that with the Bible, you know? Uh, you say like, no, no, no. In camp number three, there's this attitude of, hey, we need to lock this up. We need to like lock up or lock down whatever the analogy is, like every part of our doctrine has to be locked up and secured so that it cannot be swept up in the cultural winds of relativism, which honestly, in our corner of the nation, poses a much greater threat uh, than fundamentalism. So as you reflect on those three things, some of you might say, hey, I feel like I fall pretty squarely into one of these three camps. Others of you might recognize a journey that you're on, and you say, oh, I remember a season I was in that one, or this one, or now I'm kind of torn between these two. Uh, but the good news is, wherever you find yourself in terms of your relationship to the Bible, as we close this morning, I want to share briefly that there is another way. Uh, there is another way forward. There's a different path that we want to take as a community as it relates to Scripture. So I want to share this briefly as we close. I think this is the path forward for us as a church community. If I were to describe from the leadership, hey, this is how we relate to Scripture, I would put it in these words. I would say, the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is God-breathed and profitable, meaning that God inspired real human beings to write Scripture as they were a carried along, inspired, guided by the Holy Spirit. They are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God or the follower of Jesus may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, that we might become all that we are meant to be in Christ as we walk in eternal relationship with him. As we approach the Bible, as a community, we do so in humility, placing ourselves under the authority of Scripture, not over, recognizing that Scripture was meant to change us, not the other way around, 
and recognizing that, that the only way we can clearly see Jesus or clearly navigate life in this age and into the next is by engaging with this book. It's knowing, trusting, following Jesus, but not the Jesus of our own invention or Jesus as we wish he were, but, but Jesus as we encounter him in Scripture. As a church, we have already paid a cost for our faithfulness to this book. And in the years ahead, I think it's safe to assume that we will pay that cost again. Jesus said, the world has hated me, it's going to hate you too. That's part of what we sign up for when we follow after Jesus. But we will not compromise our relationship to Scripture. No matter how loud the culture gets, we reject the cultural demands to conform or to stay silent. We will not reinterpret this book to meet their changing desires. But neither will we succumb to a fear-based fundamentalism, which leaves no room for genuine questions or honest wrestling. We cannot afford to fall into either one of those camps. Instead, in the years ahead, we are going to read, study, engage, question, discuss, debate, memorize, and meditate on Scripture together. So we come to this book as a community with a heart to interpret, not reinterpret, all that God has done and all that God has said. Being faithful to what's written here, while in the same breath recognizing that interpretation is not always easy. And some things in Scripture are much more clear than others. Is Scripture clear that Jesus was crucified in the first century for your sin and for my sin? to set us free, absolutely, cover to cover. It is clear on that topic. Is Scripture clear that Jesus was raised from the dead in a, in a real physical bodily resurrection? Absolutely. It is abundantly clear. We have more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than any other event in ancient history. Scripture is abundantly clear. It could not be more clear. 
But who are the Nephilim? And exactly how and when did God create the world? In detail. If I was standing there, what would I have seen? I'm not totally sure. And what's the significance of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And what is the precise relationship between God, who's clearly sovereign, and and human choice that we'll be held accountable for? How does that all fit together? And what exactly is going to happen at the end of the age when Jesus returns? Well, those and many others are journeys of interpretation that we get to embark on in humility, in community, as we engage with the ancient book that sits in your lap. Let's pray.